Now, last week, um, I said that this week we were going to start talking about the rapture because it fits uh, coming in between chapters 3 and 4. But this week as I was prepping, it occurred to me that it might be better, rather than starting with the rapture, to start with the tribulation. What is the tribulation? What is it that the church is being raptured from? And so, pardon me? From the tribulation. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to uh, look at the topic of the tribulation. So first, let's pray. Father, you are con in control of time, history, uh, for you, since you're in the continual present, these things that are yet future to us, you can look at as in the rearview mirror. Your, your vision of these things is perfect. And thank you that you have revealed so much to us that we can have an, at least some understanding of what is to come so that we can warn those uh, who do not know you to flee the wrath that is to come. And so help us to see you and your hand this morning as we start to trace through and pull this thread through your scriptures uh, dealing with this period of time that is yet to come. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is the tribulation? You hear that term used from time to time, uh, given the current uh, unrest in Eastern Europe. Uh, this, this, this topic is, you know, kind of coming out to the forefront, uh, perhaps more than normal. So what is the tribulation? We're going to start right off with some questions. Jacob's trouble, that is a great descriptor, and you get that from where, Danny? Old Testament, do you know specifically where? That's from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 30, we're going to look at that one here in a little bit. So you have, uh, it's known as the time of Jacob's trouble. What, what else, how would you describe the tribulation? End times? We're going to run into a phrase today, the latter days. You, you'll run into another phrase from time to time. Very common, uh, it's, and it's, again, it's a thread that you can pull through, specifically through the prophets in the Old Testament. You'll run into a phrase called the Day of the Lord. Now, that, now when it comes to the Day of the Lord, um, there are multiple days of the Lord. This would be referring to the great day of the Lord. The day of the Lord always has the context of what? When you read it in the Old Testament, what does the day of the Lord always have the sense of? Judgment, always. So the tribulation, how long does the tribulation last? Seven years. Now how do we know that the tribulation lasts for seven years. Okay, and we're going to go to Daniel 2. Daniel 9, exactly, not Daniel 2. We're going to go to Daniel also. So, tribulation is a yet future. This is still future for us. Seven-year period of time. Now, it is a time of unprecedented 
suffering. That's why it's usually referred to as the great tribulation. Have there been periods of, t of tribulation throughout history? Yes. Have there been periods of tribulation for God's people throughout history? Yes. And in fact, uh, is, is tribulation a bad thing? Now, there's a loaded question. Okay, depends on your perspective. Did you find it interesting when we went through and looked at the letters to the seven churches? Five of those churches had, Jesus had a bone to pick with five out of seven. Some more than others. Two churches received no criticism from the Lord Jesus. And what was the common characteristic of those two churches? They were facing persecution. They were in the midst of it. Persecution has a way of purifying the church. Why is that, by the way? How does that happen? Okay, you're not relying on yourself so much. You have to rely on the Lord. Sheep would be the other word to use there. Okay, now, Lori just used a great word, sifts. Sifts, like you sift flour. What, 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 do you, what happens when you sift something? You're, you are separating out. Now, I carry a set of sifting screens in my work vehicle because every once in a while I have to sift through debris looking for usually very small things. When you're sifting, you, when you talk about sifting relative to the church, you're sifting out the tares. If someone is a look-alike, or if someone is a, a hanger-on, they typically don't want to hang on when there's a lot of trouble when you're going to pay a price for naming the name of Christ. You lose a lot of people because they don't want to suffer physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally. So the people who stay, they're all in. And so it tends to have a purifying effect. So honestly, persecution is difficult, right? Because you're having to go through and face that suffering and face that opposition and that pressure and that distress. And yet, it also has a purifying effect. The time of the Great Tribulation, Jesus said... In Matthew 24, if those days were not shortened, all flesh would die. And so this is, again, it is a time of unprecedented suffering. And it's split into two halves. 
the last half being the most intense. And sometimes what you may see is you'll see that the entire period is referred to as the tribulation. The last half of that being the great tribulation when the wrath of God is being fully outpoured. Now, if we have a, a period of time that has a known length, what is the purpose of this period of time? No, you're, you're fine. And that is one. There are two. And from a redemptive standpoint, one of the primary, one of the two primary focuses of the tribulation is the purification and the redemption of national Israel. As we go through, starting in chapter four of Revelation, all the way through to the end, there is one reference to the church, and it is in passing. It's, in fact, what it is, it's going back and saying, make sure that this is read in the churches, and that is in, at the end of the last chapter of the book. We're going to see no references to the church whatsoever for virtually the rest of the book. The scene shifts. Now, rather than the, the emphasis being in Asia Minor with the churches, where the churches are, that, John, that Jesus was writing to through John, now it shifts back to Jerusalem. Much of it focuses on the temple. And we are going to see that there are many, many, many references to the Jews and to Israel. And so one of the purposes of the tribulation is the purification and the, um, the chastisement of Israel. That's one. There's another focus in the tribulation period. And that is God bringing judgment to the unbelieving world. We are going to see as we, as we study the rest of this book that there are three sets of judgments, seven in number each, and they get increasingly intense as they go. We'll have seven seal judgments. Then there's, that's going to give way to seven trumpet judgments, and then we'll have seven bowl judgments. And with the bold judgments, that is going to be the releasing of the, of the final wrath of God. We'll get into some of that later um, when it comes to the, to the judgments. So what I'd like to do today is pull on some threads. Revelation is the end of many of these threads. Most of them start long before the New Testament. And so look up. Lori, look up. Look up. Nobody look at your paper. All eyes. Right here. Right here. I'm going to read a passage. 
You tell me where it's from. Okay? I'm watching you with all four of my eyes. When you become the father of children and children's children and have remained long in the land and act corruptly and make an idol in the form of anything and do that which is evil in the sight of the Lord your God so as to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that you will surely perish quickly from the land where you are going over the Jordan to possess it. You shall not live long on it but will be utterly destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord drives you. There you will serve gods, the work of man's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. When you're in distress and all these things have come upon you, in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and listen to his voice. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. Where's that from? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. So when we talk about the latter days and all this trouble that the nation is going to be facing in the latter days, this is going all the way back. When was Deuteronomy? What's the setting of Deuteronomy? Where, where's the nation of Israel? They are still on the east side of Jordan. They have not gone into the promised land. And this is Moses giving them the, the basically a... a, a well, part of it's a goodbye, but he is bringing them back to the law and their responses to it. What's going to happen when you don't do what God says? The blessings and cursings, right? And so here you have in Deuteronomy the, look, in the latter days, ah, you guys are not going to be in your land. You're not going to be in your land because of sin. You rebelled against me, and I've kicked you out of the land. But there is coming a day of restoration. And so here you go, all the way back. Now, turn to Deuteronomy, uh, not Deuteronomy. Turn to the book of Daniel. Actually, let's, let's stop here in Deuteronomy for a second. What do you have in Deuteronomy? Are there promises in Deuteronomy? Yes, there are. Now, are promises always good? Yeah. <laughs> it loaded question. Loaded question. Not trick, loaded. 
Because again, it does matter on your it does matter on your perspective. God promised them, if you rebel against me, I'm going to bring judgment on you. I'm going to bring chastisement. And for that, you can even go back to Leviticus. Because God lays it out there. If you rebel against me, I'm going to bring this, I'm going to bring this, I'm going to bring this. And that's where you start seeing things. I'm going to bring famine, I'm going to bring pestilence, I'm going to bring the sword. Ultimately, uh, I'll bring you, uh, you'll get kicked out of the land. You'll have those who come in and rule over you. And then the, the, the nuclear weapon is exile. And all of these, as they come, God doesn't start with the nuclear option. He starts way back over here with, um, I'll withhold the rain. I'll withhold this. I'll withhold this. What's the purpose of God starting there and moving toward, tightening the screws, so to speak? Why does he do that? Yeah. Yeah. It's his kindness. He wants them to repent. And it's the idea of, all right, once upon a time, uh, I was taught there's a certain number of compliance holds. When you want somebody to do something that they don't want to do, you can take the parts of their body and put pressure in certain ways, in certain directions that induce what? Pain. And the more they fight, the more you twist. The idea being what? What's the purpose of a compliance hold? It's in the name. Yeah, I want you to comply. And when you comply, pain stops. It's only going to happen the more you resist, the more pressure I'm going to bring because I want you to do something. God is doing the same thing. He brings more and more pressure to bring them to the point of, you know, what did he say to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus? Yeah, you're kicking against the goads. How's that working for you, Saul? And so God doesn't just jump out here to the nuclear option. And in fact, they've got the promise of judgment. I will bring pressure. I will bring death. I will bring exile. You can count on that. Yet there's also the promise of mercy if they will turn. And in fact, there's another promise. At the end, they will. Because God doesn't forget. In fact, verse 31. For the Lord your God is a compassionate God. He will not fail you nor destroy you. What does that sound like? Is there a New Testament equivalent to that? Yeah, Hebrews 13.5. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's passive and active. I will never leave you. I'm not going to forget about you. You're not going to slip through the cracks. You're not going to drift away. 
nor will I forsake you. I won't cast you away. I won't abandon you. I won't throw you out. I will not fail you or destroy you, nor forget the covenant with your fathers, which he swore to them. And so again, why is this going to happen? Why is Israel going to ultimately be redeemed? Okay, it's been the plan and promise. Somebody was saying something else. Okay, does God honor his promises? Yes. Did God make promises to Israel? Yes. Is God going to honor those promises? Yes. So, let's flip over to the book of Daniel, chapter 9. By the way, the, the, the passages that we're going to look at today are by no means exhaustive. This is a sampling. Now, what is the context of Daniel 9? What's the first part of Daniel 9? His prayer. Daniel reads, and he's read the letter from Jeremiah in which God revealed that the exile was going to last for how many years? Seventy years. So Daniel can read, and Daniel, he can also add and subtract. Daniel was in the first of the three exiles, and so he's been in Babylon since 605. And as he goes through and looks at this, he can figure out, okay, I was this old when I came here, and I'm this old. It's coming up on 70. And so he begins to pray, and he's, um, he's acknowledging the sins of his people. He's acknowledging his own. Lord, the time is coming. Are you going to bring us back? Are you going to bring us back into the land? And so Gabriel comes to him, and in response to his prayer, Gabriel passes this on to Daniel from God, starting in verse 24. Seventy weeks, and it's literally seventy-sevens, have been declared, have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. 
and the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So we have 77s that are decreed. And these 77s are split up into three sections. You have a period of six, then you have a period of 62, and then you have one by itself. Those first two occur back to back. So you have six sevens, which is how many? You didn't know you were going to have to do math today, did you? There's 42. Then there are 62 sevens. Anybody want to take a stab at that one? Well, let's see. 62, there's 420. And then, so it's 434. So 434 plus 42 gives you 483. Because 77s would be 490. Okay, so number one. Is this symbolic? So is this to be taken figuratively? Or should it be taken literally? Okay. Why would one take this figuratively? You can hear a pin drop in here. That's good because I can't figure out a reason why you would take it figuratively either. Right. So there is a specific amount of time divided into specific brackets, subsets. There's a start, there's a, there's a decree to rebuild the city and the walls. Now, there is a lot of discussion as to, well, which decree are you referring to because there were four of them. So which one do you start with? And then also, what is the end out here? Now, the earlier you start, obviously, what does that do to the, to the period of time? The earlier you start, the earlier you finish. Now, there have been those who've gone through and they've, people have done math and come up with all kinds of stuff. If you go to, um, if you use the fourth of the orders, uh, which would have been from Artaxerxes, then at the end of that 62 weeks, the seven and the 62, 
you end up right around 30 A.D. Now, what's happening in 30 A.D.? Yeah, in fact, someone went through and, and actually calculated it out to where you can actually get to where it's the triumphal entry. Now, what happens at the end of Jesus' life here on earth? That's a bad question. When Sam's looking at me going, huh? He's crucified. What, what does the nation do with Jesus? They reject him. And in fact, after three years of ministry, how many followers does Jesus have? How many people are gathered in the upper room? 120. How many people did Jesus heal physically? in those three years? How can you even begin to count, right? In fact, I've never gone through and done it. Uh, I've never gone through and counted the ones specifically referenced in the Gospels. You might be pushing 120 just with the ones that are specifically listed. And yet, the people have rejected him. He's been cut off. And so, you have this period of time coming up to the, the, the national rejection of Jesus as their Messiah. And so, that period of time comes to an end. That 69 weeks is done. Now, we still have another week hanging around out here. What is going to trigger the onset of that week, according to the text? Pardon me? So you have, you have a covenant that is made, and this covenant is going to start that clock. That's the start of the week. And it's a covenant that involves Israel as well as a number of other people, of other nations. That's going to start the clock. Halfway through that covenant, that covenant will be broken. And then the most intense suffering takes place over that last half. Now, an important thing here to get. Who is this time about? How do you know that? How do we know it's about them? That's right. Who are Daniel's people? Okay. The Jews. Following right in the context, right? What has Daniel been doing? He has been praying for his people. So Daniel, this time is decreed for your people 
and for your holy city. So, when we get to the 70th week of Daniel, who is that about? It's about Daniel's people and Daniel's home city. So again, it's about Israel. Okay, flip back a little bit and let's go to Jeremiah chapter 30. Now we're going to the left chronologically when what was uh, Jeremiah's relationship to Daniel chronologically they're contemporaries right Daniel is in Babylon in the royal court Ezekiel is in Babylon with the exiles he went out with wave two Jeremiah is with the people who still remain in the land in Judah, in Jerusalem. All three of those guys are contemporaries. They're all there at the same time. And amazingly how they end up getting some of the same messages too to broadcast to those that they're with. So Jeremiah chapter 30 and let's start in verse 5. For thus says the Lord, I have heard a sound of terror, of dread, and there is no peace. Ask now and see if a male can give birth. There's a picture for you. Now, okay, can a male give birth? No, they can't. And I don't care if you identify as a woman, all right? Physically impossible, right? Who says the Bible, Old Testament, who says that isn't relevant? Ask now and see if a male can give birth. Why do I see every man with his hands on his loins as a woman in childbirth? And why have all faces turned pale? They can't give birth, but they sure look like it. They're suffering the same pain, the same distress. Verse 7, alas, for that day is great. There is none like it. And it is the time of Jacob's distress. But he will be saved from it. In fact, let's keep going. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bonds and strangers will no longer make them their slaves, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, and do not be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from afar and your offspring from the land of their captivity, and Jacob will return and will be quiet and at ease, and no one will make him afraid. For I am with you, declares the Lord, to save you. For I will destroy completely all the nations where I have scattered you. Only I will not destroy you completely, but I will chasten you justly and will by no means leave you unpunished. What is happening right as these words are being spoken, as these words are being written, 
what is, who's the audience and what is their experience at this moment? The audience is the Jews in Judah and what condition are they in? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sam's, they're eating their own kids. How did you win? How did you overcome a city in those days? By siege. And what happens in a siege? You starve them out. Why waste a bunch of soldiers trying to break down big walls if you can just cut off their provisions and starve them out? And when they're done, and when they finally get to the point where they will give up, you haven't lost anybody. And you just walk in and take over. And in fact, how much fight is left in them? The people you just starved out. None. Jacob's trouble. In Daniel, this is about your people. Jeremiah calls it, it's the time of Jacob's trouble. Who's Jacob? Israel. Remember, Jacob was renamed, right? And his name became Israel. So again, there's no other time like it. But they're going to be delivered. So you have, again, the promise. And, and by the way, when is Jeremiah alive? Year. Give me a year where Jeremiah would have been alive. Okay, 605. He's alive in 586 when Nebuchadnezzar comes and takes the city. And he's alive for some period of time after that. So he's all the way back in the late 500s B.C. Jesus is still 600 years in the future. This is 600 years before the cross. And yet they've got the message. There's going to be difficulty. There's going to be great difficulty. You're ultimately going to be delivered from it. All right? Now... Time for some Book of the Twelve. You all know what I'm talking about when I say Book of the Twelve, right? That's the Minor Prophets. It was called the Book of the Twelve because they were all written in the same book. So, Because some of them were small, the idea was some of them were small and they didn't want to get lost. So flip over to the Book of Hosea, first book in the Book of the Twelve. So find Daniel and go to the right one. Hosea chapter 3. Hosea 3, verse 4. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. 
Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. How many years has Israel been without a king? All right, let's, let's, let's break that down a little bit. Who was the last king of Judah? Who was it? Who was king when Nebuchadnezzar came in 586? That would have been Zedekiah. There are no kings of Judah after 586 B.C. None. There has never again been a king of Israel. How long have the Jews been without sacrifice or ephod what was the ephod who wore it the high priest had the ephod right with the 12 stones how long have they been without sacrifice and ephod 70 AD when the when second temple was destroyed Hosea is actually ministering before the destruction of the first temple. So since 70 AD, so now for 1900 plus years, 1950 years, they have not had sacrifice or ephod. Yet, verse 5, afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. So again, this thread here of last days, latter days, 70th week. Again, out here in the future. All right, let's continue going to the right. And let's go to the book of Zephaniah. Right after Habakkuk. Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 14. Near is the great day of the Lord, near and coming very quickly. Listen, the day of the Lord. In it the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day, a day of trouble and distress, a day of destruction and desolation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. What does that day sound like? Yeah, this is focusing on which aspect? Is this focusing on the aspect of Israel's deliverance, or, is, or what is this focusing on? Judgment. Judgment. Those who will not turn, this is what they have to look forward to. Now, again, that is by no means even close to exhaustive but 
Let's move into the New Testament. Flip over to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24, uh, start in verse 3. And as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation, and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever's on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. Whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, Behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. So if they say to you, Behold, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or, Behold, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now flip over to chapter 25, verse 31. 
But when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you, thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even to the least of them, you did it to me. Then he will also say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it, to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So at the onset of this period of time that Jesus himself is referring to, what's happening at the beginning of it? You've got natural disasters. You've got war. Those are going to lead into treachery and betrayal. Natural disasters and war, those are on a, on a large scale. The treachery and the betrayal, well, now we're talking about personally. This is between person and person. In fact, elsewhere we're going to find out that it's going to be members of the fa family. Families are going to be broken over this issue in this period of time. So the abomination of desolation triggers the great tribulation. And that great tribulation ends, it culminates in the return of Christ and the separation of the sheep and the goats. Now the end of these threads we're going to find in Revelation chapters 6 to 19, and no, we're not reading all of those today. But what those chapters are going to detail, they are going to show the deliverance of Israel. And they're going to lay out the judgments on the unbelieving world, again, in detail. Now, over the years, in fact, in this day today, people look at the book of Revelation and they have a multitude of ways of interpreting this book. Now, at the beginning in the in the introduction to this book, which hermeneutic are we going to use to interpret the book of Revelation? 
That's right. The same one we always use. We're not going to change the hermeneutic just because we're, run we're running into symbols, just because we're running into things that aren't necessarily something you run into on a daily basis. We're going to use the same means. So again, literal, grammatical, historical. Going back, finding in this book, in Revelation, some of it sounds almost verbatim to passages from the Old Testament. And so as we go through, we're going to pull those and see how it is that what an Old Testament prophet was seeing, guess what? John's seeing the same thing here. Now, that's not the only way to interpret this book. There are many who, because there are symbols in this book, they tend to spiritualize the book. And when you spiritualize something, you take something that was seen. What is John doing? Why are these words on the pages of the book of Revelation? Why are those words there? Okay, so we can read them, but how did they get there? Why those words? And why is he writing them? Jesus told him to. Jesus commanded him, you write down the things that you see. And as we study the rest of this book, we're going to see exactly what we've seen in the first three chapters. John interprets nothing. He's writing down. That's what he was told to do. And that's what he does. He writes it down. We are going to be given understanding either in the text where John's, who are these people? And he's going to be told who they are. Or what does this signify? Well, this is what it signifies. He'll either be told or there's going to be a thread that you can pull on from before so that we can have an understanding here of what is going on. And so we need to resist the temptation to simply spiritualize things and, you know, try to find the deeper meaning behind them. John's writing these things down at Jesus' request. In fact, in one place, he's going he's to hear something. He's going to go to write it down, and Jesus gonna, don't write that one. That one, we're, we're not letting that one out. But everything else is being released. Everything else is being made known. It's being revealed. All right, questions to this point? Rick.
That is a great question. And Rick's question is, uh, when in Matthew 24, when it talks about the elect, is that only talking about elect Jews, or are there still elect Gentiles that can come to faith? Accurate summation? Okay, so the answer to that is yes. Now, who's the focus on? Jews. In the Old Testament, who's the focus on? It was the Jews. The Jews were God's chosen people, right? Could Gentiles come to faith? Yeah, they could. Yeah, they could. The focus was on God's chosen people. In the time of the tribulation, the focus is going to be on God's chosen people, the Jews. Are there still, are, will Gentiles be able to come to faith? Yes. Is that going to be a real common event? I'm not so sure. Now, I'm Right. So during the tribulation, yes, there are Gentiles who will come to faith as well. Um, when we get into the millennium, um, and again, there is, and, and quite frankly, the majority of Christendom spiritualizes the millennial kingdom. Okay? The majority of Christendom says that the millennial kingdom, frankly, for the, for the majority of Christendom, we're in the millennial kingdom. We're in it now. Satan's bound. I don't want to see a world where he's not. And so, again, <laughs> when we get to the millennial kingdom, and, 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 and talking about that. And I think we'll probably do that in a couple of weeks. Um, bottom line to the millennial kingdom, everybody who is alive going into the millennial kingdom is redeemed. Okay? The millennial kingdom starts with all redeemed people. But they have kids. And as time goes on, because again, the millennial kingdom lasts for a thousand years, and it's a thousand years, all right? Just, just get used to that one right now. It's a thousand years. 
When Jesus says it six times in seven verses, it's a thousand years. Just like in Genesis, it was a day. You had day one, day two, all the way up through day six. So as these kids are born, you will have some who come to faith, and you will have others who do not. All of those that do not, and, and in, a, in, a, in as perfect a world as you can have that still have sin, there are going to be multitudes of those who do not come to faith. Because at the end of the millennial kingdom, there again is another war. And there are a bunch of people on the other side. Bunches. Millions. It is about the heart. And it's about saving grace. Yeah. Jesus ruling personally on the earth at this time. In a time of... <laughs> Someone who dies at 100 years old is going to be considered an infant. Long lifespan. In as perfect a world as you can get. And yet, even then, now by the way, Satan is bound then. So what excuse just got taken away from these people? That's right. The devil made me do it. I, if I could do a Flip Wilson impression right now, I'd do one. <laughs> Only old people get that joke. <laughs> Some of you youngsters are looking at me going, I have no idea what you're talking about. That's because you're not over 40. Not that over 40 makes you old, but it makes you a lot closer. They're not going to be able to say the devil made me do it. That is simply the rebellious heart of man. All right, any other questions? Okay, next week, we're going to get into the rapture. And then I think the week after, we'll probably do the millennium. Let's pray. Father, if you were not sovereign, how hopeless we would be if you were not able, in fact, able to control all things, everywhere, all the time, if there was any aspect of life that was outside of your control, how hopeless we would be. And so we worship you this morning because you are, in fact, the sovereign king. You are working all things after the purpose of your own will, after the counsel of your own will. And you are bringing history to its conclusion. And you're gracious enough to show us what that conclusion is. Lord, thank you that you have rescued us, that you have set us free from the dominion of sin, from its power. How we look forward to the day and long for the day where we will be free from its presence, where we will be able to worship you face to face, to be able to see you face to face.
something no man has ever been able to do. Help us to be faithful, Lord. Help us to be those who tremble at your word, that we would be humble enough to, to sit under its direction, and that we would obey your commands. Help us to be faithful people in our day. In Jesus' name, amen.